This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. He said, you know what this is? I said, yeah, it's a razor blade. He said, I got you a mummer. She told you. And here, they were guards and I was a convict. And that's the way it was. You knew where you were. I wish you would just learn to behave like ladies. And uh, he said, if you draw any blood, I'll kill every man in there. So the man dropped the knife and turned to the other men that were with him that he had set loose out of the very cells and said, well, he means it. He'll kill us if we don't give up. So they gave up. You do your own number. You do your own time. If you hear something, you keep it within yourself. If you see something, you're blind to it. I don't care if it's... If it's uh, a killing or whatever, you just don't see it. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, back to Behind Gray Walls, a podcast about the old Idaho State Penitentiary and the men and women who were confined here. My name's Anthony. I'm talking to Sky, who's back in Texas. I'm always back in Texas, I feel like. <laughs> uh, Aww, hello, well. I'm back. It's time to start the new semester. So, guess I got to do that. How's how's everything going in Texas right now for you? I came back in the summer and I did a little bit this time. I have these like existential crises of like I don't live here. I don't live in <laughs> Dallas, which is the ninth largest city in the United States. Like, there's no way this is my apartment. So, um, just a little bit of an adjustment with that. But other than that, just been hanging out, you know, getting food stuffs restocked and doing my time out here as it were how's it back back home everything's still still running um we are still open here at the old pen so come on down take a visit walk through the Mm -hmm. site visit our website you have to pre-purchase your tickets right now so visit our website and uh, purchase a little pass and come on in getting a little stir crazy i'm ready to go and play some music and have some concerts as soon as this is all up but other than that I mean, I was so I was listening this morning to our like some of our very first episodes of 2020, and we had so many plans and so many oh. good ideas, and how optimistic we were about <laughs> living a normal life in 2020. <laughs> Thwarted. <laughs> and here we are, yeah. a year later, still unsure when we're going to live our normal lives again, if there even is such a thing as normal life after this. <laughs> we can only laugh. Different. And enjoy uh, the people that are <laughs> around us, and yeah, we can only laugh to keep from crying. Oh yeah, <laughs> there's still good in the world. It's great. No, of course there is. Like this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Let's talk true crime. Let's Sky? yes. Let's talk about some inmates. Yeah, who are you talking about today? Okay, so today I am looking at. Number 5788, Helen Grace Andrews. Again, you know, like many of our women, I do feel bad because Anthony has his pick of many, many, many thousands of inmates. And so he gets to choose (laughs) all the exciting crimes and gets to stay away from all the boring forgeries and, you know, the the basics. But with me, sometimes you're just going to get a little bit of a boring one. But... (laughs) I'm I'm of the firm opinion, having done the research, that these women all deserve to have their stories told. So we're just talking about a forger today, but um, she had a very interesting life, and I am excited to tell her story. So sources, her inmate file, Ancestry.com records, newspapers.com, 
Idaho Statesman articles, uh, the National Registry for Historic Places about Hotel Moscow, legendsofamerica.com, and Wikipedia. So pretty basic outline today, so hopefully um, you'll learn something interesting. So Helen Grace Andrews was born on April 1st, 1914 in Wolf Point, Montana. She was the second daughter born to Andrew and Lena Jackson McGinnis. Her older sister, Lena Ellen, was about five years older, and her younger sister, Jacqueline, was 15 years younger. She wasn't born until 1929. So Helen Grace preferred to just go by Grace, so we'll just call her that, but her full name is Helen Grace. Before she was five years old, the family moved to Douglas County, Washington, which is halfway between Seattle and Spokane. And uh, this is where Grace grew up. She grew up in Washington. She attended high school in Kashmir, Washington, which is just outside of Douglas County. Um, And this is all we really know about her childhood. So on June 30th, 1936, she married Merrill G. Andrews, who was a salesman from Oregon, about 20 years her senior, in East Wenatchee, Washington. Grace would have been uh, about 22 at the time. So Merrill actually had one, at least one previous marriage to a young woman named Mildred G. Snelling, um, and together that couple had one son named Robert. And this marriage to Merrill did not seem to be approved of by Grace's parents, but um, and that was really because Merrill seemed to have a considerable hold over Grace. There was a letter from her father that was sent after her arrest that said, quote, this fellow Andrews seemed to have an unexplainable attraction for her from the first. And again, I think, you know, this is very much sort of a a young love or a first love, just sort of uh, devotion to, um, you know, your husband. And and so may not have been the best guy for her, but nevertheless, they're married. There was some question as to if they were actually married. Uh, Well, I should say the Latah County Attorney General seemed to question if they were actually married, but they were definitely married. I I found the, the marriage record. So they were for sure married. Uh, the Latah County uh, Attorney General just was a bit skeptical about it. So the couple resided in Washington for two years. It is also possible they moved to Portland, Oregon. Again, the records are a little bit of a gray area in this regard. But they, they, you know, regardless, they stayed in the Pacific Northwest. And, you know, because of sort of Merrill's hold over her, uh, you know, she would kind of do whatever he told her to do. So, in October 1938, Merrill, Grace, and possibly a friend, um, may have just been sort of an acquaintance, um, named Leonard L. Steffen, the three of them went to Moscow, Idaho, through Washington State. Only a couple of articles mention Steffen, and he's actually not listed as part of the duo in sort of the official telling of the crime. So, was he there? Was he not? Well, I don't know. So, anyway... Uh, at least Marilyn Grace, for sure, perhaps Leonard Steffen, are staying at Hotel Moscow. So a little bit about Hotel Moscow. It was a hotel built um, between 1891 and 1892 on the corner of 4th and Main. Um, and it was actually part of a building burst in downtown Moscow. And it cost about $30,000 to build in 1891. Do you want to guess how much money that is in 2020? Like 500,000? Close. 828,000 dollars. 828,000. Wow. Yeah, which but really for to build a hotel, I feel like I mean, I guess I don't know. I just feel I feel like I assume that every time some sort of like large-scale building is built it has to be like a million dollars or more. I don't know if that's the case, but 
um, you know, $828,000 is a chunk of change. So wow. this Hotel Moscow, it's a three-story building in light red brick with round arches and decorative brickwork. It had a big opening gala in April 1892 with bigwigs from Spokane coming into town and, quote, enthusiastic mentions in the local press. And the building was put on the National Registry for Historic Places in 1978. Just a little a little bit of a rabbit hole there. So anyway, they're staying at the hotel. And while staying there, Merrill actually wrote several bad checks, signing various fictitious names to each of the checks. And so then he would give them to Grace, and they each took checks and they cashed them in different places around town. Mm-hmm. So... According to a statement from Judge Gillies D. Hodge, Merrill was, quote, under the impression that his condition and inability to secure employment was a sufficient excuse, end quote. Merrill himself claimed that he was drunk when he wrote the checks. Now, the reason they got caught, because again, like, it's, I think it's harder for us to understand in today where, like, as people, we're sort of traced everywhere we go. But back in, you know, 1930s, it wasn't like you could just sort of cash a check and you know, they find out way too late and you're long gone. But Marilyn made the mistake of he took, he earlier in the day cashed a check at a place and then later went back and tried to cash another check with a different name in that same place. <sighs> Originally, Merrill was actually the one who was caught and arrested. And we'll get into how Grace ended up uh, in this scheme uh, as well in just a moment. I'll take a pause here. We'll talk a little bit about Lata County because I have talked about uh, Moscow uh, several times. Well, I think at least twice, maybe not several times, but I have talked about it um, at least twice. So just to give you, I actually didn't know this about Lata County. So this is really interesting to me, hopefully also to you. So <laughs> the area of current Lata County was originally home to Nez Perce, Coeur d'Alene, and Palouse Native peoples. The area is considered sort of the main part of Idaho to be home to Palouse. Palouse also, um, I believe, are over in most of Washington, but that area is especially the the area where the Palouse sort of were in what is now Idaho. And of course, it wasn't that to them back then. But the Palouse peoples are culturally related to the Nez Perce tribes and the Appaloosa horse, which is the official horse of the state of Idaho, was named after the Palouse tribe. And the Appaloosa horse is also associated with the Nez Perce. So there's close ties in the Nez Perce are a large tribe in the state of Idaho. So, you know, I don't know, all rabbit holes, I suppose. So anyway, um, December 22nd, 1864, the Idaho Territorial Legislature established two counties, Kootenay and Lato, spelled L-A-H-T-O-H. And so Lato County originally contained pretty much all of the northern Idaho panhandle west of Shoshone County, which borders Montana. So pretty much all but a tiny piece of that whole skinny top part of of the state of Idaho um, was this Lato County. And Coeur d'Alene was named the Lato County seat. Um, but there wasn't very much settlement in that Lato County um, and not enough to support a county government, even if Coeur d'Alene was named the county seat. So in January 1867, about three, well, actually about two years later, I suppose, the Idaho legislature actually repealed the creation of those two counties. And so what happened is Lato actually got swallowed up in the Nez Perce and Kootenai counties. And Coeur d'Alene is currently in Kootenai. The, in sort of the, that, that area of the Lato County, major white settlement really began around 1871. And in 1878, Moscow residents, still thinking they were part of Lato County, tried to set up a Lato County government. Mm. Um, Because, again, news doesn't 
spread the same way that it does now today. You know, they didn't, they hadn't been told that like, oh, you're not part of this county anymore. This county doesn't even exist. You know, they went to the governor and they said, we want to set up this government, this county government for Leto. And at first the governor granted their request and then someone had to be like, hey, uh, that's not a county anymore. Um, So he had to inform them that that wasn't a county. And so interestingly, even though Moscow was in Kootenai County, the residents of Moscow, again, like didn't know that. And they, they didn't really consider themselves to be part of that, that Kootenai County. So they sort of petitioned to have a county in that Moscow area. And so the territorial legislature originally failed to address a creation of a county for the residents of Moscow. So for a long time, they just sort of sat in limbo. So our friend, our good friend, Fred T. Du Bois, finally went to bat for Moscow and he petitioned members of the U.S. Congress to create a county in this area. And so on May 14th, 1888, Laytock County was created by Congress with Moscow as the county seat. Mm. Um, It was the biggest population center in the area, especially after the establishment of the railroad in 1885. And fun fact, Laytow County, Idaho, is the only county in the entire United States that has been created by Congress. I never knew that. That's really interesting. Yeah. I thought that was a fascinating little fact. Yeah, that's a fun Um, little trivia tidbit. (laughs) I know. So, Latah County was named after Latah Creek, which actually runs through eastern Washington and northern Idaho. Latah is a Nez Perce word meaning a place of pine and pestles. So, that actually refers to finding shade under pine trees to use pestles to grind camas root for food. It also could possibly mean fish, Um, but I like the first one a little bit better. (laughs) Um, so Laytaw County is 1,077 square miles, bordering Benoit, Shoshone, Clearwater, and Nez Perce counties in Idaho, and Whitman County in Washington. And as we know, the county is home to the University of Idaho in Moscow, and some other sort of major towns, but they're still rather small compared to Moscow, uh, Beauville, Julieta, Genesee, Kendrick, and Troy. The county population in 2010 was 37,244, and the 2018 estimate was 40,134. It also has several ghost towns, so if you're sort of into ghost towns and visiting a lot of those these old mining places, uh, that does include Pine Creek, which uh, I actually mentioned last week in Hattie McCormick's story. So Pine Creek, I believe, is where her father lived. So that's where he was all the way up north compared to where she was at down in southern eastern part of the state. So anyway, that's my little rabbit hole of Leyta County. So Merrill is caught and arrested. We know this. So authorities were actually not interested in prosecuting Grace, but she actually refused to be separated from Merrill. So she was arrested and she pleaded guilty. Authorities all seem to agree that Merrill was the real one behind the crime, um, but she just sort of refused to be separated from him. So the parole slash identification officer named Ed Whittington said, quote, Personally, I think Andrews used all his persuasion to talk the girl into it. The girl is without a doubt the victim of Andrews' carefully planned scheme. The Latah County Attorney General said, quote, It would be my judgment that this woman, if not associated with her alleged husband, would not be viciously inclined. And then Judge Gillies D. Hodge said, quote, From appearances in the courtroom, I believe that Mrs. Helen Grace Andrews is a weakling, both mentally and physically, and anything she may have done was through the dominancy of her husband. You know, clearly, 
she really didn't do anything wrong, but she sort of insisted that she be part of this. So um, she entered the Idaho State Penitentiary on October 16, 1938, on a charge of forgery for a stay of 1 to 14 years, which again is the general sort of the, the blanket term for forgery. So um, her intake form, age 24, born in Wolf Point, Montana on April 1st, 1914. Her nativity is Montana, as we know. Uh, Occupation housewife, hair brown, complexion fair, weight 112 and a half, build small, color white. Um, Residence um, says Portland, Oregon, and married, yes. Um, That's pretty much all we have on her. So It was later learned that Moscow was actually not the first place that Grace and Merrill had written bad checks. On June 15th, 1938, Grace cashed three forged checks in Wenatchee, Washington, supposedly signed by J.W. McGinnis. Now, remember McGinnis, it's her maiden name, and her father's name was Andrew. So it's not J.W., but she's using uh, that maiden name. So the first check was for $25 cashed at the Wenatchee J.C. Pennies. The next was for $10 at the Cashmere Drug Company. And then the third one was also for $10 at the Sim Drug Company. And so the sheriff of Chelan County, where Wenatchee, Washington is, actually put a hold order on both Grace and Merrill for when they were released from Idaho so that they would face time uh, in Washington for those charges. So I guess the question is, um, because, you know, it is possible, of course, you know, Meryl would have known her maiden name, but in the fact that she was willing to go along with it, she was the one who cashed these checks. Was she as sort of guiltless as I think the Idaho authorities are sort of making it seem? That's something we'll never know, but that's just sort of food for thought. There is um, a really interesting law, at least according to all the old movies I watch, which of course is not like the most historically accurate, but I feel like as many times as it's brought up in old movies, it has to be true. That wives didn't have to testify against husbands. Yeah. And so I don't know if that was sort of her extra way of being like, I'm not going to testify him. I'm going to go be arrested with him. I don't know if she perhaps felt guilt um, for doing it and so insisted like, no, no, I should be arrested too. She, you know, I don't think she was as innocent as everyone is sort of, you know making her seem I think she knew what she was doing and you know perhaps deserved to spend a little time for it just as kind of is always the case with our our ladies um, little is known about her time in prison so on March 1st 1939 about six months after she first entered the penitentiary governor C.A. Batalfson wrote a memo granting Grace a temporary reprieve as she was quote dangerously ill and is in need of emergency surgery She was given 10 days to recuperate with a potential five days if medical authorities stated that she needed to stay for longer. Now, it's not obvious what and not clear what her medical problems were. Now, on her Bertillion, it does list a, quote, pronounced growth in the neck. Um, And and I'll you know, we'll post the pictures on both our Facebook and our new Instagram page. You can see this very clearly in her mugshot, which actually you can only see it in the side view of it because I remember looking at this mugshot yeah. and we're so focused to look at the just the sort of head on one that I just happened to glance at that side view and I was like, Holy crap, like it is it is like it's not it's I don't even know how to just it just is an entire bulge basically from the bottom of her chin all the way down to her clavicle 
which again, you, you don't notice in that front view. So we'll make sure we'll post that side view so you can see it. It's, I mean, incredibly pronounced. And so it may be that this is the issue. There are no other major medical issues listed on that Bertillion, um, which sometimes they would do. So she was granted that time to go to the hospital. She returned from the hospital two weeks later on March 15th, 1939. About a month later, her father actually wrote a letter. Um, So bear with me. This was sort of the most information that I had. Um, So I do quote this. She, I think he wrote, there are three, several letters that I sort of quote at length. April 12th, 1939, this was a letter from her father, quote, we are ready to come for her if she can come home. Sheriff Tom Cannon of Cheelan County, Wenatchee, Washington, will release his hold order on her any time that she can come home. Sheriff Harry Smith, Douglas County, Waterville, Washington, or his deputy will come with me to get her. I have a little nine-year-old daughter that we are anxious to protect from any publicity as it would ruin her life and she could not stand the scorn or pity of her school associates. She is bright but sensitive. Um, So I think this next sentence is referring not to his nine-year-old daughter or Grace's youngest sister, but to Grace instead. So he says, she is bright but sensitive. Sheriff Cannon blames me for not having her home before this, as he would rather she be home when he comes for Andrews, when he is released there. What we want to avoid is the publicity of this, for the child's sake and also for Grace's sake. She does not realize what she is doing. This Andrews went by the name George Brown here, which is uh, in Washington. He met a few of Grace's friends here. The notice of him being wanted was in the paper, but not that name. The second and last notice was evidently noticed by people, and anyway, not many people around here know that she married a man by that name, as he's kept himself in the background for reasons of his own. Our information from his parents is that this is his third marriage. The first, a divorce for non-support and drunkenness. The second, just mentioned, but nothing said of divorce. And this one, can't you help us get this girl home and avoid a worse disaster for her? And that was signed A.L. McGinnis. That's so revealing. (laughs) Right, exactly. So we learned so much about, you know, we sort of just had this view that like, oh, he's maybe not the best of guys. He has been divorced, but that doesn't mean anything about people's character. It just, Mm -hmm. um, you know, means that people didn't get along. And so we learn now that he was, you know, going by a completely different name um, when he lived in Washington. And that's sort of why people didn't, you know, there was a notice for his arrest. But since he was going under this different name, no one knew him. So, you know, this was not a a sort of innocent thing that, that Grace was going into. I'd, and she may not have known what she was getting into. Yeah. So um, Ed Whittington, who was sort of the parole and identification officer, wrote a reply to her father. Quote, as you are no doubt aware, the laws of the state require inmates of this institution to follow certain prescribed rules in making application for release. And in order for Grace to gain a hearing before the Board of Pardons at their next regular meeting in July, she must follow the regular procedure. In view of the recommendations and interests displayed by your sheriff, Tom Cannon of Cheelan County, and also our observation of Grace while she has been in our supervision, officials of this institution would not hesitate to recommend leniency, provided the family would advance assurance that Grace would not return to Anderson, and by that he means Andrews, when he is released from here. We are thoroughly convinced that he is too far advanced on a criminal career to make any permanent reform. Wow. So... Her father replied a few days later, again, just sort of asking that she be released for the sake of Grace and for the little sister and that she would do much better under care back home. It was a whole long letter, but it sort of repeated a lot of what he said in the first one. So in May 1939, Grace sent an application to the Board of Pardons. 
quote, Gentlemen, I have never been in trouble before. Will return to my father's and mother's home at Wenatchee, Washington. You may be assured I will never be in trouble again. If I may have an opportunity to interview you, I can explain my case fully, or I believe the warden can give you information that will show you at least my partial innocence. My minimum sentence will have been served September 16, 1939. By June, so just about a month later, the parole board decided to release her and informed Chelan County, who again had that hold warrant against her for the checks she wrote in Washington. The Chelan County prosecuting attorney Richard G. Jeffers wrote back saying they decided to drop the warrant, saying, quote, It will give her a chance to come back to this community, and if restitution is made for the money taken by checks in this community, we will immediately have the information dismissed against her. Oh. End quote. So, July 6, 1939, Helen Grace Andrews received a full pardon from Governor Batolfson, and she did indeed return to her parents in Chelan County, Washington. Merrill Andrews was actually pardoned on January 6, 1940. He died about two and a half years later on December 2, 1942 in Portland. She didn't serve her minimum sentence. Uh, she served eight months and 21 days of a one to 14 year sentence. Um, but I think perhaps given the circumstances, that seems fair to me. So uh, I don't know much about her after, but on May 17th, 1941, she married a man named Wallace Colvin, about five years her senior. He was divorced. They must have been divorced as well because she married Colvin in 41, whereas Andrews didn't die until 42. So they must have divorced in order for her to get married. And that's really all that we really know about that second marriage to Wallace Colvin. As far as I could tell, they did not have any children. It was just the two of them. On October 11th, 1968, Helen Grace McGinnis Colvin died in Okanagan County, Washington, and she is buried in the Kashmir Cemetery in Kashmir, Washington. And that's it. It's one of those stories that, like, know the background of the person that you're going to marry. Like, (laughs) Mm -hmm. seems like he had a lot of baggage before. And Yeah, but, like, you can only know what they tell you. And if that's something that, you know, he decides to keep hidden or he just says, like, oh, yeah, I was divorced once and I've sort of been in trouble with the law. Like, you know, you just have to sort of, there has to come a point that you take him on face value. Yeah, Um, yeah. But... Uh, yeah, so it was sort of a an unfortunate situation for her. But, you know, luckily she, you know, I think had this helped her get sort of her health taken care of. And, uh, and you know, it seemed that at the end, you know, she ended up being married to Colvin for, uh, you know, 27 years. Yeah. Um, she died pretty young. Uh, she would have been about 54. And I couldn't find a, a death certificate or, a, you know, a, a anything to say what it is that she died of. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems a pretty young age to die, but, you know, it seems sort of at the end that she, you know, she kind of kept her promise to the parole board that she, you know, wouldn't wouldn't be in trouble again. And it doesn't seem that she ever was. Was so. there reference to her transfer to the hospital, like in the newspapers or anything? I do believe there was, but it was uh, just, it you know, it was a quick mention that, if, if it was, I honestly, there it would have been like one article just that she was being moved. Um, oh. But, it you know, it, it I think especially with sort of these less violent crimes, people seem to be less concerned of like, oh, this inmate's going to the hospital. Right. And especially women uh, just really, because again, like the women 
just were given very little consideration unless they did sort of a really heinous crime. Their record, like, it's just, it's not the same as mm-hmm. with men, where men are, can be considered, oh, so dangerous, and, you know, women just weren't. And uh, even when they did dangerous things, and, and there's one lady who I'm going to touch on the very end of this season, she was one who was disturbed and sort of deserved to be considered dangerous. But, you know, Grace was not one of them. Um, and so, uh, if it was, you know, all it was, was like, she got a brief pardon to go to the hospital for surgery. And, you know, that's really all we have on it. It's not much different today. Uh, police Mm -hmm. are busy with crime around town, but you only hear about the, you know, Lori Vallow case and Chad Daybell case, you know, (laughs) there's not a lot of, of that. Yeah. Well, good work, Sky. Anyway. I think I always find these like couple you know forgery things super fascinating and mm-hmm. i i'm looking forward to our couples episode this season I... mm-hmm. in 2021 the idaho state historical society is celebrating 140 years of service to idahoans as the trusted source in protecting idaho's historical places and artifacts and sharing its stories The Old Idaho Penitentiary became part of the Idaho State Historical Society in 1975. As a part of the commemoration, the Old Idaho Penitentiary is committed to bringing you 140 unique stories about the people who worked, lived, and served time at the site through this podcast and the events and programs scheduled throughout the year. The Capturing 140 Storytelling Program offers a unique glimpse at lives filled with hope and despair and the enduring triumphs and tragedies at Idaho's only penitentiary from 1872 to 1973. Stay tuned. And every time they went in, you know, they, uh, Mahaffey would start in, you know, cussing, threatening, you know, just to the top of his voice, you know, every guard, you know, including myself. But I'd just stand back and I'd say, okay, Paul, you know, another 60 days. When when you learn, you know, that it's your behavior and your conduct that is causing all of this and not the guards, then, you know, we'll let you out. Let's hear about who you have got this week. I have a fella named Paul Andrew Mahaffey, number 8714. And my sources today are uh, his inmate file, the Library of Congress Chronicling America, Idaho Daily Statesman, newspapers.com, which, oh man, what a resource, and a report prepared by the Idaho Advisory Committee to the United States Commission on Civil Rights, its recommendations to the President and the Congress from 1980, titled A Roof Over Our Heads, Migrant and Seasonal Farm Worker Housing in Idaho and several oral histories from guards that you will hear, and kind of a personal visit that I had with a former guard who turned me on to this story originally a couple summers ago. Paul Mahaffey is kind of a mystery to me. His early life, I have no idea. I had to use the form about his army service and his Bertillion to get any sort of leads, but they didn't really lead to much. So his Bertillion lists June 29, 1928 as his birth date, and several newspaper articles after his arrest mentioned that he was from North Carolina. 
Uh, he told prison authorities that he joined the United States Army on July 17, 1948, and I actually did find his name in the Charlotte Observer in North Carolina under a list with 118 other men who enlisted in the Charlotte Army and Air Force recruiting office on that date. He also listed that he had one brother who had also served in the Army. So I know he had a brother. He was in or around North Carolina, born probably June 29, 1928, he also said he rose from recruit to private, and he served in the Pacific. So this is, you know, 1948. This is after World War II, so probably just a base somewhere in the Pacific. And he was actually designated an undesirable discharge in September of 1949. Then he told authorities that he served in the North Carolina Penitentiary from 1950 to 1952, and I couldn't find any details about his crime, his incarceration, or release from that institution. Basically, kind of, kind of avoid his, his early life. I couldn't find much of anything. I mean, I just want to say, welcome to my life. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so hard, Sky. I don't like unanswered <laughs> I, questions. I know. I know. I get it. I totally <laughs> understand. But I mean, even same with Grace. Like, we knew she went to high school, and I only knew that because I found a yearbook record. So, yeah, oh. I totally, I totally understand. So, after his release from this North Carolina penitentiary, he had a terrible record. And little keeping him in the east so like many before him he traveled west and sometime i i believe july 10th or 11th 1953 he and a partner named jose frias decided that they wanted to make a quick buck so in all the newspaper accounts these two were described as transient laborers they stole $55 and a car key from a man named Frank Garcia working at the Wilson Labor Camp in Rupert, Idaho, in Minidoka County. I can only guess that Paul and his partner, Jose, were probably living there in the labor camp and working in the fields with Frank Garcia. Wilson Labor Camp, it could actually house 350 migrant farm workers at a time in these small single-room plywood buildings that had no plumbing. There's one structure that served as the bathroom with showers and toilets that all of these laborers would share. And uh, in this 1980 report about the different labor camps around the country, uh, Wilson Labor Camp was depicted as one of the worst in the state of Idaho. And they described the structures that the migrants lived in as essentially chicken coops. And just to zoom out a little bit, this is 1953 when Jose and Paul are stealing from this farmer in this little camp. Any of you up on Idaho history or if you visited the Idaho State Museum in the last year, you may have remembered that there was another camp in Minidoka that was to inter people of Japanese descent from the West Coast. And that was after President Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066 in which over 120,000 persons of Japanese ancestry were forced into these internment military camps. And in Idaho, our, our major one was in Minidoka. So we'll definitely talk about that internment camp and speak to some specialists on the topic in a future episode. So just to kind of give you a perspective, if you're aware of that camp, you can you know what Minidoka County is like, uh, desert and farmland. So Paul and Jose, they steal this $55 in a car key and they decide that's not enough. So they decide to rob this Native American man named Willie Bear. They actually jump him from behind and severely, quote, beat him about the head with fists in this strong arm robbery and stole his billfold, which happened to be empty. 
They were caught almost immediately after, but I couldn't find any details about their arrest. They're lodged in the Minidoka County Jail in Rupert, and they were in a cell with a man named John Hamblin of Clearfield, Utah, who was busted writing bad checks. And Paul and his partner, Jose, they hatched a plan to escape. They got a hold of a can opener and some tin shears that were smuggled in by a 19-year-old Seattle woman named Marilyn Dahlman. They chose July 20th, a Sunday evening, to make their break. Their cellmate, John Hamblin, he didn't want anything to do with it. So to keep him from squealing, they actually gagged him and tied him up with a cord from a lamp while they dug through the brick wall of their cell into the office next door of probate judge Jake Wall in the middle of the night. And once they were in the judge's office, they actually looted his desk and made off with a whopping $2 before dropping to the ground two stories below using a rope that they had made out of blankets and sheets. They ran off into the night. I mean, a classic, classic getaway move. It really is, yeah. (laughs) And about two hours later, John Hamblin was able to free himself, untie himself, and he was screaming, kicking the walls to wake up the sheriff, who was in the jailhouse apartment room next door. And, of course, the sheriff's like, oh, he calls the surrounding authorities and tells them to be on the lookout. And around noon, a man named Earl Brower spotted Jose Frias near this potato cellar in Hayburn, about six miles southeast of Rupert. And the police were alerted, and when they arrived, Jose, he started to run, but stopped when they shouted a warning to him with guns drawn. Paul made no attempt to escape. He was actually just watching the scene unfold while sitting underneath a tree. (laughs) So neither resisted the officers. They were cuffed and returned to the jail in Rupert. Somehow, I'm guessing their old cellmate, John Hamblin, word got out that this young woman, Marilyn Dahlman, had supplied the two men the can opener and shears that they used to dig out. And she was arrested and held on a $1,000 bond and charged with aiding the escape. She pleaded innocent at first, but after a little over a week in jail looking at some serious charges, she changed her plea to guilty. On August 26th, she was given two years probation with the Idaho State Board of Corrections, and one of the most unique punishments I've come across, uh, Marilyn was required to attend church at least once a week as part Mm. of her probation. Hmm. That's super interesting. She must not have gone to church. (laughs) Yeah, so I was like, this is an infringement on rights. Like, there's no way this can happen. But Oh, Anthony, it's the 1950s. <laughs> oh, man. We, I mean, we are deep in the religious fervor of the mid-1950s. This has always gone on across the country. And I found it in pretty much every state. The latest example I came across was actually from March 2014. Ooh. U.S. District Judge Patricia Minaldi was arrested for a DWI in Louisiana when she was found intoxicated with an open alcoholic container in her vehicle, and she ended up pleading guilty. She was handed a year on probation, uh, had to pay several fines in order to attend church at least once a week in place of community service. So mm. I, I think it's a. it was a, definitely back in the day, like in the 50s, it was yeah. a... Yeah, well, I mean, in the 50s, that's when we get uh, One Nation Under God put on coins. That's when we get Mm -hmm. One Nation Under God put in the Pledge of Allegiance. That was, there was a huge push in the 1950s to put sort of God back into everyday life. So um, that is really interesting, but I'm also not at all surprised. I mean, this is just conditions a judge can set for probation. So they can do pretty much whatever they see fit. Mm -hmm. And, 
you know, you can you can uh, agree to it and follow through with it, or you can go to jail or go to prison. So, right. yeah, I, I tried to follow to see if Marilyn Dahlman stayed out of trouble, and you know, I didn't see her name anywhere else in any other newspaper. So. That's always a good thing, you know, when you're searching mm-hmm. these things. Mm-hmm. So I think she did stay out of trouble. But uh, Jose Frias, Paul Mahaffey, both were charged and convicted. And Paul was charged September 22nd, 1953, and sentenced to two terms of life imprisonment for the robberies to run concurrently and five years for the escape to commence at the end of his terms for robbery. And Mahaffey uh, tried to indicate that, that he, that Spaghetti that was the one I'm saying to get him, that isn't right, was the one that, that really uh, committed the worst crime. And I think Mahaffey was misused in, in by the sheriff's office while he was in Rupert. And he came up here with a big chip on his shoulder, and he never made an adjustment. And he and Clapp, he hated Clapp with a vengeance. I, I really was fearful that Mahaffey once he got out of the penitentiary, he would try to do away with Clapp. But I don't think he ever made any attempt. So many of the files from the 50s onwards are, you know, full of information about prisoners' social histories collected by both the authorities from the prisoner themselves and from these questionnaires that were sent to their families. Uh, mm-hmm. They also usually have a lot of correspondence letters from family members and from other institutions and authorities. But there's really not much in Paul's file other than write-ups. Pages and pages and pages of write-ups. Welcome to my life. Yeah. (laughs) So most of the information, as I said, I I got from his Bertillion. I believe that some of his file may have been lost or maybe at a different institution, which we will get to in a moment. So... His Bertillion, the little figurine, lists a handful of things, and the next to it, it kind of describes him. So, Paul Andrew Mahaffey, number 8714, age 25, years, it said three, so I'm not entirely sure what that meant. Born June 29th, 1928, weight 134 pounds, height 67 and a half inches, or 57 and a half. Brown hair, hazel eyes, regular nose and ears, dimpled chin, medium complexion, and slender build. His teeth were described as fair. He had a couple surgical scars on his abdomen, had vaccination marks, and a tattoo of a red rose with green leaves on his left forearm, and his name Paul on his left shoulder. Just in case anyone didn't know who he was. (laughs) Very important. In case he forgot himself. (laughs) As I said, his files made up mostly of write-ups and infraction and transfer forms from one punishment cell house to another. So far, of all the files I've gone through, his has the most punishment forms I've ever seen. Because oh. of this and future litigation, prison authorities actually created this detailed timeline of where Paul was during his incarceration, which was extremely oh. helpful. And yeah. When he arrived, number four house and number five house were still under construction. So we can definitely say that uh, he broke in several of the maximum security cells after that cell house was constructed. So let's get to some of those. So he arrives, he goes through processing, and after a few days, actually only three, which I was surprised about, he was given a job in the license plate factory on September 25th, 1953. He would lose this days later on October 1st, after getting into a fight. 
and he was sent to deadlock in number two house until November 26th. He was released and given a job in the chow hall as a waiter. He didn't hold on to that for long because authorities said his work in there was unsatisfactory. So he was sent back to lockup from December 16th, 1953 to February 10th, 1954. He was given a job in number four house as a janitor. Again, he couldn't even go on a month before getting into trouble. On March 1st, 1954, Paul was caught in the act of passing tobacco to a man in solitary confinement, this fellow named Scannell, number 8178. He was busted in the act and given a cell in the cooler and a diet of bread and water, locked away until May 13th, 1954. So March to May, he's in the cooler, and then in May, he's transferred to Five House, the newest detention ward, and he remains in Five House until June 7th, 1954, when he's transferred back to Siberia for, quote, raising hell in detention ward and insubordination to Captain Talley, end quote. He remained in Siberia for three months until September 20th, 1954, when he's returned back to Number Five House. He stays in Five House for 10 days until September 30th, 1954, when he requests to be locked back in Siberia. So he stays there until November 1954, November 5th, and then is returned again to Five House. A month later, he's sent to segregation, most likely in the 1890s cell house, where he's put on deadlock until January 5th, 1955. He's then assigned a new job in the prison tailor shop, and he actually stays out of trouble and held on to the job for two and a half solid months. But on March 31st, 1955, he's busted, quote, making a sheet out of state material, end quote, and was sent back to Siberia for two and a half months. He's released June 16th, 1955, at which point he's asked to be locked in the cooler. He remained there through July 9th, 1955, and then was moved back to Siberia for calling guard Ashman, quote, a smart son of a bitch, end quote, and put on a diet of bread and water with one meal every third day. And the other guys that was down there with me, they would, uh, they would feed me. And the way they would do that, there was three little holes in the bottom of your door. And I'd take a thread out of my pants or my shirt or my blanket. And they'd give you a, a cut-off toothbrush, about maybe two inches long. And I'd tie that string on and I'd poke it out that hole. And the guys down the line would throw a line down and get on top of mine. And I would pull their line in. And they would take a, a piece of cloth, maybe three inches wide, six, eight inches long, they'd, they'd crumble food up into it, and they would roll it up like a cigar, and they would tie it with string and things, and I would pull that in through that hole, and they'd make a small enough where I could pull it in through the hole, and that's how they would feed me, and we would take turns, if somebody wasn't getting fed, well, the rest of us take some ourselves to feed the other guys down there, yeah. So he stays there until December 2nd, 1955, when he's transferred back to number five house, and he remained in five house until March 1956, in which time he was sent back to segregation, probably in 1890 cell house, for a month between March 21st and April 18th, 1956. Then he was turned back out on the yard for the spring and early summer of 1956. This would not last long. So he returns to number five house, September 13, 1956, after getting into a fight with prisoner Robert Tisdell, who he will definitely cover in a future episode. Robert was also in on a life term for robbery and a regular troublemaker, 
and he had been in Five House for a long stay himself and, quote, had been released from the detention ward only 30 minutes before the incident, end quote. It was reported by Warden Lou Clapp that Paul and Robert had had some bad blood between them for quite some time, and when Paul saw Robert walk into the loafing room, it was on. They went at it, and Paul actually stabbed Robert with a pocket knife three times in the ribs, the back, and the neck. Guards heard the fight and broke it up, cuffing both men. Robert was taken to the prison hospital with cuts that Warden Clapp described as minor, and uh, he followed up by saying that both men were, quote, in trouble most of the time, end quote, and that both men would be returned to the detention ward. Two months later, November 23rd, 1956, Paul was sent back to Siberia for, quote, calling cell house guard Gunn a son of a bitch and raising a disturbance in the detention ward, end quote. He stayed there through the winter until March 16th, 1957, when he was transferred back to Five House. He was released back on the yard May 16th, 1957. Oh, so he stayed out of trouble for a whole year and actually had a job in number two yard in the records office where he learned and reportedly mastered the art of typing. Then, June 7, 1958, he was sent back to number five house where he remained until October 29, 1958. He was released to temporary deadlock and stayed out of trouble for nearly two months. On Christmas Day, 1958, the Salvation Army was hosting a program at the prison. The day was scheduled to have a performance by the prison choir from 10 to 11 a.m., followed by lunch and a special band concert and service by the Salvation Army at 1.45 in the prison loafing room. Everything was being set up and cleaned for the ceremony in the loafing room when a prisoner serving a term for assault with intent to commit rape named Leonard Ortego actually approached Paul from behind with a sharpened iron rod that was 12 inches long and about one and a half inches in diameter. He stabbed Paul in the back. Paul took off running from Leonard into the prison electrical shop at the end of the multipurpose building while guards rushed in and disarmed Leonard. Quote, Clapp said Mahaffey's ribs deflected the instrument, probably saving him from a more serious wound. End quote. I never want to hear the term, your ribs <laughs> deflected the instrument. Oh, I, I mean, that's a, what they're it. there to do, but like... Yeah. <laughs> This oh foot-long, one-and-a-half-inch iron rod, sharpened iron rod, like, going into your ribs. I mean, oh. I'm assen- yeah, I'm essentially imagining, like, a sharpened, like, fire poker. Yeah. Just, and he run like, he's able to run after that. Like, I mean, he was uh, just fleeing. He was just, oh, Right, yeah. but still, like, I would, wow, okay. It could have been so much, it could have been a lot ribs worse. Deflecting. Like, he was lucky that... <laughs> That was all that happened right then. Uh, right. So, you know, he's taken to the hospital, the prison hospital, bandaged up. Leonard Otego was taken to Five House, and it was thought that it was just bad blood between the two. Clapp was asked where the weapon came from, and he told the uh, newspaper men, quote, I think someone else made the weapon for him in the machine shop, end quote, because Leonard, he was just a janitor. He was assigned as a janitor, so he didn't think he could have had access to a piece of iron like that. Mm -hmm. So Paul ended up only spending three days in the hospital, and then he was sent to Five House once again, and he spent two months there. 
then was released to temporary deadlock in Number 2 House through March 20th, 1959, and he was given a job as a janitor in Number 4 House. And after a little over a month there, he was transferred to the upholstery shop in May 1959. He held this job for five months, then was sent to the bakery to work as a helper and worked there in the bakery as a helper for a whole year. On June 17th, 1960, he was actually promoted to the secretary of the mainline bakery, using his skills typing to keep records in that office. Unfortunately, he only had this job for two days because on June 19th, he was reported as late for the Saturday night count in his cell in number four house. And he was sent back to number five house for 30 days for this infraction. On July 19th, he was released and given his original job back in the bakery as an assistant. In August, he was promoted from assistant to the head baker. And from there, he moved back to his typing job as a clerk for the bakery using his masterful typing skills. So I actually have an oral history from former guard Chesley Austin from May 21st, 1992. And he talks about this. Let's listen. They had a school down there. Hmm. Where these fellows can, uh, well, they give them a high school education. And some of them, maybe a couple of years of college. This Paul Mahaffey that worked for me in the bakery, he, he learned to be a typist. Typing, he took down there. Oh. And he could make a typewriter talk. <laughs> and he never made a mistake. And he, he'd be ty- like this, you know, and never look at these still. Oh, he was good. He was good. Unfortunately, Paul couldn't control his temper. He was sent back to Siberia on February 21st, 1961 for, quote, agitation. In September, he asked to be transferred to the cooler at his own request. Prisoners actually reported that Siberia was better in the winter and the cooler was better in the summer because it it was just that. It was cooler in there. There was more space to kind of move around, and Siberia got really, really, really hot during the summer. In March 1962, he was returned to Siberia. Then, finally, April 17, 1962, he was returned to number 5 house after spending 14 long months between the cooler and Siberia. One of the longest stretches of time in solitary confinement that I've actually come across at this institution. Those last couple months, he had actually written several letters to the prison administration that he wanted out of solitary, and he promised to conform to prison life and stop causing mayhem and trouble. And Warden Clapp said that, quote, in the past few weeks, he seemed to have changed. And when I got the letters from him, I decided to transfer him to cell block five and to keep him there until he seemed even more willing to adjust to prison life, end quote. So he's released from 14 months on April 17, 1962. On April 18, 1962, he's in Five House, and these two guards entered to bring the prisoners breakfast at 8.15 a.m. They locked the door behind them. They were Captain Frank Zack, age 60, and Howard Shraft, age 42. Captain Zack went from cell to cell, handing each prisoner their tray of food, and he approached Paul Mahaffey's cell and handed him the tray. When Paul whacked him across the forehead, with the piece of iron he had ripped from the bed frame the night before. As the captain stumbled forward, Paul pulled the large key ring from him and unlocked his cell. He then ran down the line, unlocking the cells of the other maximum security prisoners. The prisoners beat the other guard shaft with the iron bar and took both guards hostage. It was customary for guards not to have any weapons on them while they were in the prison yard, but that day Captain Zack had a pocket knife with him 
which quickly was used to threaten him and Shraft. Paul Mahaffey had the backing of several of the prisoners, namely Gerald Holst, who Clapp described as defiant and belligerent, and most of the other prisoners quickly fell in line behind Paul, who was extremely feared in the prison yard because he was so violent and so unpredictable. Not all of the prisoners did, though. As we mentioned in the last episode, young Peter Martin didn't take part in this in this little uprising. He was fortunate because another prisoner named Jacob Edward Gordon, who attempted to stop Paul and the rest of the goon squad from hurting the guards, was actually pummeled and jumped on by the other prisoners. So he was beaten for not taking part in it. After securing the cell house for himself, Paul actually pulled up the cell house intercom system and phoned Warden Clapp's office. He told Warden Clapp that they had taken the guards hostage and that if he or any other prison officials tried to free them, quote, we'll kill them. Warden Clapp responded, quote, either carry out your threat or give up because we're coming in to get you. Eh. <laughs> Clapp was tough. I mean, and classic Clapp. I yeah. Mean, he wasn't going to let anybody. in the face of these. Seriously. And, you know, sure enough, he actually gathered up 15 guards who armed themselves from the armory with shotguns, a Thompson machine guns, and rifles, and marched to the front door of number five house. And the prisoners, they had they had jammed the locks, so you know the keys wouldn't work. So Clap called for a blowtorch and had a another prisoner actually come with a blowtorch and start torching around the locks on the door so that they could get inside. Mm. And Paul and the other prisoners were upstairs in the witness room, yelling down to the the guards from that window, talking about how horrible the conditions were and that they were going to roll the heads of the guards out if if they came in. And all these armed guards just standing there. And the and the guard up in the tower was told to, to shoot to kill. I guess he had a clear line of sight if either of Shraft or Zach were attacked. So I was actually fortunate to tour the site a few years ago with this former guard named Frank Richardson, who the prisoners nicknamed Rebel because he was from Georgia. And he actually like led me through the whole thing and and showed me like, yeah, we cut right here. We cut around the door here. And then as you get into Max, there's another door right there. And then you're just in the main area. And then we had to cut through these other two uh, locks right here. So Hmm. luckily... There was an oral history taken with this guard, 1992, on May 8th, 1992. So let's listen to Frank Richardson, nicknamed Rebel, talk about this this whole event. The one problem, child, we had was Paul Glenn Mahaffey, you know, and uh, he was he was the notorious uh, uh, prisoner that uh, had nothing to lose, you know. He, was serving a double life plus five sentence and uh, with no possibility of parole and uh, he was just outright mean. I mean, he was a mean individual. He was probably the agitator, consequently uh, spent probably the most time of any inmate in the history of this state penitentiary in the whole Siberia and in Five House down here. Uh, he was going on five years of being locked up in, because every single time that uh, you'd let him out of lockup, he would do something to violate the rules or regulations of the yard and back in lockup he went. You know. And it was mostly uh, retaliatory measures against the guard. 
Like yeah. what? Even when he was in the hole in Siberia, you know, he would um, he would collect his feces and uh, his urine, and when the guards would come in, and I, I don't know whether they had them, but they had little wicker doors about like this. Mm-hmm. As soon as the guard got next to him, he'd throw it in the face, you know. Of course, that'd get him another 30 days in the hole, but he didn't care. We were talking on the phone yesterday. You were telling me about um, a disturbance that happened out here when you were captain. I'd really like to hear yeah. about it. Well, I wasn't captain. I was, uh, when when that occurred, oh, I wasn't. That was, okay, yeah. that was different. This, this is five house down here. That particular week, I was working as a lieutenant in a lieutenant's position in three house. One of my duties that morning was to, uh, after I had all my janitors clean up my three house, was to go down to five house and help assistant captain uh, Zach and uh, Lieutenant Howard Shraft. Those prisoners in maximum security got one bath and a haircut every week, and that was it, was to go down and help them. That morning, as I finished up, I walked down to the door, and I knocked on the door for the guards to come let me in, you know, to help them. And nobody came, and I could hear somebody, the keys, we had great big rings of keys. Mm -hmm. I could hear the keys jingling all over the place up there, you know. About that time, we had a janitor down there called Tiny Luth. He was about six foot six and about three hundred and fifty pounds. And Tiny was, uh, you know, he was pro guard all the way, you know, and everything. And everybody just liked him, you know. And uh, there's little wicker things down at the bottom of the uh, floor of that five house. Tiny hollered out to me, "Reb, you better go get because all the inmates call me Rebel because I was from uh, Georgia." And uh, he said, Reb, you better go get some bulls. Uh, they've taken over five house. And, of course, Tony, Tiny was always kidding with us, and we were always kidding with Tiny. And I said, oh, you're kidding me, Tiny. You know? And he says, no, I'm, I'm serious. And he stuck his head down next to the wicker door over on the other side of the little wicker window. And they had laid his head open with an iron bar, and he was just bleeding all over. So I ran out to the corner of the building here, and I motioned for that one tower guard to get up here with the shotgun and the rifle. So he came up, and he stood right there on the on the thing as Mahaffey and about six other cons started out the door with uh, Zach and uh, Shrap with the Chev's knives mm-hmm. to their throat. And I told Mahaffey, of course, the only weapons that I had was my ring of keys. You know, and they were, those were pretty powerful weapons <laughs> for inside that yard. And uh, so I told Mahaffey, you know, I says, you better turn them loose, you know. He says, get back. Rebel says, we're coming out. And if you don't, we'll cut their heads off and roll them out at your feet. So I said, well, you better look up on that wall because as soon as you step out that door, that guard is going to lay you dead right there in that thing. Because back in those days, that's the way it worked. We never had to shoot nobody. Never had to. Well, I take that back. We did. One guard did shoot somebody going over the wall. But it was was the shotgun, and he was just only 
few pellets, you know, mm -hmm. just hurt a lot. But back in those days, it was shoot first, ask questions later. And, that, and, and, and the cons knew that. So they didn't do anything, you know, other than this, this yeah. thing. And as soon as they saw the guard up there, they went back in and locked the door and plugged it so that we couldn't get in. Although we had an extra set of keys, we couldn't get the keys in there to unlock it. And then they got up in the windows over there in the hanging cell and uh, made their demands. By that time, we had got everybody locked down. It took about two and a half hours to get everybody locked down because that's what we did back in those days was when trouble started, you'd lock everybody down, lock them down so that they can't be out, you know, routing and stuff like that. So it took about two and a half hours to lock them down, and by that time, you know, the warden and everybody was in there, and we had Thompson machine guns. We took weapons in then after we got everybody locked down, and uh, the orders were, you know, if they harm those guards, shoot them. We couldn't break the door down or pry it open or anything like that. So we finally got Cecil Boyce, who was a automotive con, with the acetylene torch. And he came out and we were cutting the locks off with the acetylene torch. Well, they were up in the window hollering down at him, you know, you better stop it or we're going to cut the heads off and roll them out at your feet. Of course, Warden Carey and also, Warden Clapp, you know, says, you do and you're dead. Of course, they were demanding the news media be here. They were demanding that uh, television stations be here. And a whole bunch of demands. And, of course, uh, boys would bring the acetylene torch back away as soon as they would threaten to harm the guard. And Warden Clapp says, you keep cutting Boys, he'd stick back the acetylene torch and he'd start cutting again, you know, and they'd say something, he'd bring it back, you know, and Warden says, keep cutting it. So as soon as he got that big locking mechanism cut off with that acetylene torch and it dropped to the floor, those cons throw down their knives and everything and went back and closed the door to their sails and turned the guards loose. So Howard got out with just lacerations on his head. Little tiny, uh, tiny Luth took about 23 stitches to sew up his head. You know. And to this day, we have never found that metal bar that they initially used to uh, hit those guards over that head. How was it that they got control of the guards in the first place? How did it... Well, see, you, you allow one on each side out to shower and then they they conned the guard into coming in for some reason to give him soap or give him something you know and that's when they attacked the guard and once they got his set of keys then they had access to the whole building then they let out all the rest of the prisoners and so forth and we had oh we had some real dangerous individuals in there you know they were mostly murderers, uh, arm robbers, you know, that uh, figured they didn't have anything to lose, you know. And they were quite something else. Oh, I know what I was going to ask. You said Mahaffey was one of the people that was involved in 
capturing the guards. Yeah. Was he kind of a a ringleader, or what sort of relationship did he have to the other prisoners? Yeah, he was the ringleader of all the maximum security prisoners. Everybody looked up to him because he was, they, since he had done about five years in lockup, that was a status symbol to the others, that he could endure that that much and still keep coming back. And of course, every time, every time they would throw something like the feces and urine in a guard's face, that cuts you another notch on your gun, you know, so to speak, in your status symbol, because in 15 minutes' time, it's all over the yard, you know, that Paul Glenn, my happy, had thrown another cup full of feces in and guard so-and-so's face, you see. Although most of the guards had a, uh, a pretty good working relationship with the cons, but every now and then you're going to rub somebody wrong. If you find their stash of squawky, you know, which is whiskey that they make, and you take their squawky, uh, although that's your job as a guard and everything like that, it's still you shouldn't have been so aggressively trying to find their gallon of squawky because that was going to be for their Friday night party or something like that to say. Clapp said that as the armed guards entered the cell house, Paul yelled out, quote, We are people the same as you, and we got as much right to decide to be criminals as you have to be warden. <laughs> End quote. Can you imagine okay. where Paul was sent after all of this? happen i would imagine it's somewhere a bit more secure than uh than what we've got well immediately after he was actually sent back to siberia so first let's let's hear about the conditions in siberia from clap's right hand man the vice chair of the board of corrections at that time and then the future warden mark maxwell i'm sure that mahaffey was over there for over a year after I got here, and I never saw him the first year I was here. Mr. Clapp wouldn't, um, uh, didn't want me to go over there, said it was uh, uh, would be detrimental to me, or there wasn't anything I could do for him. They weren't going to get out of there until the year was up, or and after the year was up, that they uh, showed some indication that they were going to get along when they came out on the yard. And uh, they didn't have much of a chance to prove to anybody that they were going to get along uh, after they came out on the yard, except that they, uh, they'd tell the guards, now, I've, I've had enough, I'm ready to go, you know. Um, well, what, why was the hole, was the hole, what was the difference between Siberia and the hole as far as the inmate was concerned? Well, Siberia was, uh, was the plush punishment uh, for one inmate in the cell. And they had the bed, and uh, uh, were, they were in there, at least in their cell alone, in the hole. You'd have as many as six or eight people in one cell with blankets and in their stocking feet. And the wintertime was pretty rough. There wasn't heat in the cells. There was an excessive amount of heat in that little hallway, the little entranceway, going in. And in the uh, wintertime, uh, those heat registers were probably on all the time. 
but we heated this with uh, natural hot water. The odor was particularly bad. Make uh, uh, an ordinary person, or maybe not so ordinary person, and make you sick of your stomach to even go and stand outside the door. With me, it did me, you know. I went up there several times and would stand outside the door and listen for noises and sounds. And I, I was, I was really um, real disturbed the first year I was here with those men over there because I felt that the punishment was way beyond the uh, need and way beyond what we should be doing with humanity. And Clapp and I argued and argued over this, but, uh, and Mr. Fales was very much against it, but uh, he didn't want to rock the boat. And of course, I was new. I didn't really want to rock the boat. And who was I to come in here, having been a school teacher, a vocational counselor, who was I to come in here and say that uh, it wasn't unusual punishment or that uh, it was excessively cruel and so forth? Mahaffey was still there a year after I got here. But Mahaffey was belligerent and never, never showed any signs of cooperating or getting along with anybody. I, um, he uh, indicated that to me that he just got himself in a kind of a, of a coma and slept most of the time. But, uh, well, getting back to, to Siberia as a whole and, and McCaffrey having spent time there, do you think that, that that kind of punishment did act as a deterrent for the other inmates in the main population? Oh, yes. There isn't any doubt of that. that, uh, that uh, 80% or maybe more, at least 80% of your inmates were scared to death of Siberia in the hole. There wasn't any doubt about that. That was uh, worse than standing in the corner with a dunce hat on your head, you know. And then, you know, some kids are, are fearful of that, even in school. But um, in here, there was a lot of them that uh, they, a lot of them, I think, knew. And I think that's true that they, they, they weren't capable of uh, solitary confinement. Maybe claustrophobia or anything else, you know. So, Paul sat in Siberia for this little infraction from April 18, 1962 through August 28, 1962, when he was brought back to maximum security. And on September 16, 1962, he was taken from Max and rushed to the prison hospital at 3.30 p.m. There's no mention of what was going on, but on September 21st, he was again taken to the hospital for a checkup and returned by 10.15 a.m. These, like, really distinct reports, but they don't explain why he was taken to the hospital or any of his other information about this. And over the next month, he was taken to and from the prison hospital for this undisclosed illness or injury. Finally, September 28, 1962, he's returned to the yard and given a job back in the bakery. But due to his illness or injury, he was removed and sent back to his cell and taken from any available jobs on November 19, 1962, enlisted as old and disabled. The reason basically was, quote, he was taken off of disciplined status this date by action of disciplinary board, discharged from ward by Dr. Rieger. So Paul was basically just sent to his cell, and from there he started working on a writ of habeas corpus, writing about the cruel amount of punishment he was handed and the extensive time he was locked in Siberia. Well, I mean, it's a little maybe your fault. 
Here is his list of, of 12 things in his first writ of habeas corpus. One, he had cruel and inhuman punishment in the Idaho State Penitentiary. Two, the warden Lou Clapp had refused to allow him to file for a writ of habeas corpus previously. Three, the warden refused him access to law books. Four, the warden refused him to contact an attorney. Five, the warden censored the writ. Six, the warden had confined him in a place, solitary confinement, which was unhealthy and that he had received inadequate medical attention. Seven, that he had been in solitary for long periods of time. Eight, that such confinement was without probable cause or reason. Nine, that medical attention was refused him or maladministered. Ten, that the warden confined him on fictitious accusations of other inmates or guards. 11, that he is in fear of the warden, and 12, that the other inmates do not receive adequate medical attention. So I kind of wonder if all of his transfers to the medical ward were just to test the system and uh, to bolster his future writ of habeas corpus. I really am unclear. But this went to the Supreme Court, and on December 5th, 1962, this petition was denied. March 30th, 1963, authorities realized that there was little hope for Paul. He was returned to number five house, but lodged away from the other prisoners up in one of the death row cells, quote, for the best interest of the institution. On April 13th, he was brought down into the main cells in number five house. And just a little over a week later, on April 24th, 1963, Paul asked to be taken back up to the death row for some solitude while preparing his legal papers, another writ of habeas corpus. Uh, something set him off because when he was returned to his cell, he, quote, tore out and broke into pieces his toilet bowl, tore out and broke up his wash bowl, tore out the pipes that connected them, tore up his mattress, broke out all of the lights, broke chains off his bunk and tore off wall, beat the plaster up on the wall with the toilet bowl, tore up his rule book and towel plugged the keyhole in his cell door so the officials could not open the door. During the time he was tearing his material up, he cut his foot very slightly. Estimated damage, $450, end quote. He was transferred back to the cooler. Three days later, he was written up again while in the cooler because, quote, at feeding time threw urine on the person of assistant captain Faraday, also threw some salt, used foul and abusive language <sighs> towards the officers present, also broke up his metal tray and refused to give it or his spoon back, cursed Captain Howard when ordered to return the tray, end quote. I mean, no offense, but I kind of hate him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, he, I mean, if I were a prison official, I'd be like, this guy again, for real. Like, what? what is he still doing here? Like, there, especially yeah. because that, like, the, that last one, there doesn't seem to be any reason. Like, he was just like, I'd like to, like, get my legal stuff. And then he just was, like, throwing a massive fit. I'd be like, what is, I don't want him here anymore. So less than a week later, May 5th, 1963, Assistant Captain Faraday was bringing breakfast, quote, at 9 a.m. this date, when we went to feed solitary number one. Inmate Mahaffey cursed me with very abusive words. He also threatened me that he would not take any pity on me as he did on the other guards, Zach and Shraft. Also, that he wouldn't take pity on any other guards either. So he's just threatening everybody. He's good, lashing good, out. Good. He settled down and was moved again on July 3rd, 1963 to Siberia, quote, to facilitate feeding and showering, end quote. <sighs> so while all this is happening in 1963, he's... 
again, petitioning the courts for a writ of habeas corpus and requesting meetings with the parole board. In the second petitions, he wrote essentially the same thing, but with more specific details. He alleged, quote, that he had been beaten, denied medical care, forced to live under extremely unsanitary conditions, unjustifiably held in solitary confinement for prolonged periods of time, and frustrated in his attempts to file his petitions for writs of habeas corpus, end quote. The state and prison authorities actually defended themselves by saying that Paul had been, quote, an unusually hostile prisoner, and that certain disciplinary measures have been taken to ensure prison harmony, end quote. Paul also discussed the conditions of his meals while in the room to write his writ. Quote, he stated he goes in at 8.15 or 8.30 a.m., takes a pitcher of coffee and sandwiches, and these are not eatable by noon. He wants to come out at noon for lunch. He said he's held in writ room until 2 p.m., end quote. Which may have been why he freaked out in Five House. He may have uh, used the death row cells as his, his space for the writ, but his sandwiches were, you know, stale at that point. And so that might be serious? why he freaked out. I, I hate That's him. my only I guess. I hate him so much. I'm so annoyed by him. Yeah, so... He's a child. Yeah, Luke Clapp is like, all right, we got to do something with this guy. So he allows Paul to hire an attorney. And this attorney actually requests to tape Paul and prison authorities while questioning them about Paul's punishments. And to pass these recordings on to the prosecuting attorneys or the attorney general and to send them in with his next writ of habeas corpus. And Warden Clapp is like, yeah, let me contact Idaho's attorney general. And the attorney general says, no, no, we're not going to let him do that. That's that's not okay. So the judges overseeing the case, they note that they believe Paul's statements about his treatment. They describe the solitary confinement cells as medieval in character, but wrote, quote, it should be noted as a type of tribute to the men who manage our penitentiaries that cases involving alleged prison brutality are exceedingly rare. As a matter of fact, this marks the first time that this court has dealt with an application for a writ of habeas corpus on grounds of cruel and unusual punishment by prison authorities. They continued that uh, the allegations were shocking, but, quote, any individual who attempts to make a mockery out of procedures designed to benefit the wronged is tampering with the very foundation of our judicial process and risks having additional punishment imposed, end quote. Again, the second writ of habeas corpus is rejected on September 13th, 1963. The prison board, with Luke Clapp, Mark Maxwell, and Saul Clark, actually began realizing that the Idaho State Penitentiary was not the right institution for a man like Paul Mahaffey. There needed to be better oversight and security over him. So they began writing to the Federal Bureau of Prisons looking for a new location, and originally they were requesting Paul be sent to the infamous Alcatraz. But the Bureau said McNeil Island in Washington State would be better suited for it. And after several correspondence letters and Paul's file being sent back and forth between Washington and Idaho, Paul's transfer was set for just a, over a week after his second writ was denied. He's transferred to McNeil Island on September 25, 1963 and given the number 30388-M. 
While at McNeil, Paul appealed his last writ case and requested his legal papers. And when Clapp sent everything to the authorities in Washington, he wrote, quote, I hope our problem boy has adjusted well and is getting along better with you than he did here, end quote. Now, his nearly two years at McNeil Island, I couldn't find really any details. The board wrote that he seemed to be staying out of trouble. And so at this time, the summer of 1965, he actually requested that he could be brought up in front of the parole board. And the authorities felt that, okay, you know, let's, let's, see, let's see what the next steps are. So he returned to Idaho October 21st, 1965, to serve out the rest of his sentence. The board actually wrote, quote, reports on him have been very good since his return, end quote. He was sent to the prison ranch to work, which was an opportunity to prove that he had finally changed. And the board decided to grant Paul a parole on March 8th, 1966, to begin serving out his second commitment for the escape in Rupert. And he put himself back on the list for the Board of Pardons on July 7th, 1966. Finally, during the summer of 1966, at the age of 37, having spent 13 years in and out of punishment cells in the federal penitentiary at McNeil Island, Paul Andrew Mahaffey was released from prison. He left with one letter, one reader's digest, a billfold with papers, a package of letters and cards, two packages of miscellaneous articles and papers, and $2. From there, I lost track of Paul. I don't know where he ended up. Chesley Austin, in his May 12, 1992 oral history, actually said that Paul stayed out of trouble. So let's take a listen to what happened. Now, the fellow who worked for me at the bakery, his name was Paul Mahaffey. And Paul was serving double life in five years for armed robbery. And he'd been working here at the prison. I mean, he had been an inmate in the prison probably 10 years when I went to work here. And so... I called Paul one day and I said, Paul, by your name, I've inclined to think you were probably born a Catholic. And he said, yes, I was. But he said, I don't believe in God. And I don't believe any God, anything but God. I don't believe. And I said, well, that's beside the point. I said, Paul, if you go up to the chapel, pick up books that were maybe sing in the choir, and, uh, and when the priest comes in, go to the priest and make a good confession to the priest. And I said, uh, later on, the work will hear about this. And sure enough, the warden called me to his office and said, Chesley, uh, what? He was a rep talker. He said, what in the hell is going on in your department? And I said, nothing, warden. He said, well, there's a character in there who's serving double five in five years, and he's gone to a priest and confessed his sins. And uh, he said, do you have anything to do with that? And I said, no, sir. I lied. Because I, I did. Well, anyway, they took this Paul Mahaffey later on out of the state prison and took him up to McNeil Island, along with uh, a lot of other inmates from here and also Montana and, and uh, Washington, all of them, all the hard criminals. Why was that? Yeah. And so while he was up there, about two months, he, the warden at the auto, at the McNeil Island called Lou Clapp here to Idaho State Prison and said, We're sending a man back to you. And he went, well, we want you to dress him out in blues and put him outside as a trustee. And the uh, warden said, well, who is it? He said, it's Paul Mahaffey. He said, well, he'll run off because he's serving double life in five years here. And they said, well, they'd be responsible for that. So they brought, brought him back here, and they had a, they had a, a hearing up at the Idaho State Capitol. 
And of all the guards that worked here in Idaho State Prison, I was the only one that testified in his behalf. And they asked me, we can't understand why you got along with this character, and none of the other guards did. And I said, well, I'll answer that this way. I told them about all the men that worked for me in the dining room, and all the work for the boys that worked for me in the bakery, and all the ones that worked for me in the red cellar. And I told them, I treated those boys like I liked to be treated myself. And I said, that answer your question. Well, anyway, about a couple months later, Paul Mahaffey was discharged. And uh, they gave him a job, got him a job down at Caldwell with a big old pipe company. He was their head bookkeeper and stenographer down there. And one day, I met him in a coastal store in Nampa, huh? this character. He came up to me, he put his arm around my shoulder, and he said, Mr. Austin, how are you? I said, well, I'm fine. I'm fine. And uh, he, I said, you don't have to call me Mr. Austin, call me Chesley. No, no, he said, you'll always be Mr. Austin May. And I want you to know that we go to, I married a widow with two children. And we go to church every Sunday. And I have Holy Communion every Sunday. I go to Mass, I have Holy Communion every Sunday, thanks to you. So that made me feel pretty good. So kind of a, a touching thing, this uh, Chesley Austin, who really took such an interest in this really troubled man, and he tried his best to, like, take his word and, and help him out. And it seems like Paul stayed out of trouble. There's one letter dated September 9th, 1968, in which the vice chairman of the Idaho State Board of Corrections at that time, Saul Clark, wrote to Paul, whose address was in Ellenboro, North Carolina. And he wrote, quote, the Board of Correction was very happy to receive your annual report, and please accept my personal congratulations on your marriage. I think this will certainly be a contributing factor in your complete rehabilitation and return to society as a useful citizen. With reference to your request for a discharge from parole, it has been the policy of the Board to extend these unsupervised paroles for over a period of four years. Until this policy is changed, it will be necessary for you to make your annual reports as in the past. Under your present status, I do not feel that an unsupervised parole should be any detriment to you as long as you are behaving as you have been. It is true that under this unsupervised parole, you could be brought back as a parole violator. But as long as you obey the law, you need have no fear of such a happening. Again, may I congratulate you and with you success in the future. So that is that that is kind of where my trail of Paul Mahaffey ended. I couldn't find any details about this marriage, about his life. I couldn't find anything about him in Ellenboro, North Carolina. Uh, this is Paul Mahaffey, number 8714, who spent most of his incarceration in Siberia in the cooler and Jeez. five house. And it's, you know, we debated having the uprising that he held in Five House in the Disturbing Justice exhibit and, you know, the podcast last season. But it was just such a small group of prisoners. It wasn't the majority of the prisoners rising up. Mm -hmm. And it was mm -hmm. just contained to Five House. So we kind of kind of left it out. But uh, still, I mean, that's it's crazy. a pretty major uprising. Yeah. Yeah. And that's Paul. If anybody has any details, knows anything else about him, there there were so many Paul Mahaffey's across the country and, you know, in North and South Carolina, but none of them, none of their dates quite lined up and none of the information quite lined up. All the obituaries I read, 
Ah, not quite. You're preaching to the choir here, sir. <laughs> I, I understand. But yeah, that is Paul Mahaffey. Well, it sounds like he didn't need his uh, the rest of his life because he lived a heck of a life in prison. Oh, man, a heck of a life just sitting in punishment cells in Siberia, like... So next time you go into one into that cell in Siberia that's open, like just think that Paul Mahaffey probably sat there just pondering his life and his choices for, literally for years, probably just sitting in one of those cells. And, you know, I, I've gone through and tried to document all the graffiti in those cells, and I don't think I've—I don't know if it, any of his is still up, you know? There, there were so many other people who were in there after and before him, but— uh, there's got to be something left of him in one of those cells. I, I really hope that he had a good marriage and a good life after prison, and he's certainly uh, caused a lot of gray hairs for a lot of uh, authorities here and a lot of fear and angst for authorities here who had to deal with him every day. And I think I have gray hairs reading about the things no that he kidding. was doing here. Oh, anyway, well, well Sky. Yeah. Uh, stay out of trouble. Uh, well, you know, I mean, I can't make any promises. I may just start throwing a fit and stuffing things in my <laughs> lock so no one else can come in, but I'll see. Maybe I'll decide not to. All right. <laughs> well, everybody, thank you for listening. Do your own time. And do your own number. If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Not only do we get to hear your feedback about the show, but it helps others find us as well. If you're interested in finding out more about the podcast and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in today's episode, follow our Facebook group at Behind Gray Walls Podcast. And new this season, we have a podcast Instagram as well. You can find us on Instagram at Behind Gray Walls Pod. And also, this Paul Mahaffey, I feel like God uh, set me up to do that. Uh-huh. You know? Because maybe that's why I was born. To get those straight that characters out.